Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a man who's come to know the Arctic quite well in the past 20-some years. Kevin Vallelie is an architect and adventurer, a Guinness World Record holder, a member of the Explorers Club, and one of a team of four that set out in 2013 to become the first people to travel the Northwest Passage under their own strength. Turned into a hell of an adventure with a few scares along the way, all of them now part of Vallelie's first book, Rowing the Northwest Passage. It's quite the tale, and one I'm glad to bring to you today. Here's his story. I, I hardly even know where to begin with you because uh, you've done so many different expeditions, so many different adventures. It feels like I could barely scratch the surface to speak about one of them. Maybe it's best to start with what stoked the fire for you in the first place for taking on these different challenges and for uh, continuing to test yourself to get out there and, um, and to explore and to adventure. Well... <laughs> It, it started young and in a very strange way, I suppose. Uh, I grew up in Montreal uh, and uh, inner city kid. We didn't own a car. And, um, uh, you know, my folks had come over from Ireland. And, uh, you know, my brother and I became separated from my parents in a department store uh, in downtown Montreal. Uh, we lived some distance away. And we had come in that day by subway, I guess, or bus. Um, and uh, it was evening, uh, February, it was a snowstorm. And um, my brother and I became separated from our folks in this department store. And uh, I was nine years old and my brother was five. And uh, it was nine o'clock, it was closing time. And uh, an overzealous security guard uh, decided to kick us out and uh, rather than help us find our parents. And, I, you know, I still remember that moment um, <laughs> standing down there. Uh, facing out towards, uh, uh, what was that? I can't think of the name of the street now. It's René Lévesque uh, is the name of the street now. But I kind of remember yeah, as a young kid just seeing it was, it was dark, it was cold, it was snowing, and being so nervous and afraid. And and then uh, dawning on me that, um, you know, as my brother cried that, uh, you know, I was in charge. Mm. And I remember him saying he just wanted to find mom and get home. And, uh, and I just sort of grabbed him by the hand and said, yeah, you know, we'll um, – uh, we'll get home. And I just started walking with him. I didn't know where home was and it was a long way away and I didn't know where to go. When I started walking and I, I walked the wrong way at first and recognized buildings that I knew weren't in the right direction and finally, finally sort of made my way in the right direction, I suppose, seeing various streets I knew or had heard of, but uh, St. Catherine Street, uh, De Maisonneuve. And finally, I saw a street called Sherbrooke Street, which uh, I knew we lived close to. And uh, I, I suspect as a nine-year-old, I said, well, if I can follow this, maybe I'll get home. And that's what I did. And it took me almost four hours and, and did get home. Oh, my uh, gosh. To, yeah, to an awaiting police car. And it was an amazing thing, um, you know, as a, as a nine-year-old with a five-year-old brother. It was the scariest moment in my life, but it was also a uh, uh, a really empowering one. And, um, you know, it changed me. Um, and, uh, it, it wasn't long after that, <laughs> that, um, I had these aspirations and one of them was to, uh, was to ski to a pole and it would be North pole, South pole. I just had this crazy idea that I wanted to do that. And maybe I just done my first little polar expedition and wanted another, but, um, you know, uh, 35 years later, I would end up skiing to the South Pole, and then I'd, uh, you know, break a world record in doing it. So it was a pretty cool journey, and I I always attribute my kind of something in, in this desire for adventure is somehow 
you know, connected to that. I'm no psychologist, but um, yeah. it seems like the spot where it all began. <laughs> As a kid already, you wanted to you wanted to do a polar adventure and get out there somewhere. Yeah, and it's strange. Part of it was that you know my family was not an outdoor family at all. We we emigrated. My parents came over from Ireland, and my we had me and my sister and brother, and uh, we lived in uh, NDG, it's called in Montreal, or you know, kind of inner city. And camping was not uh, in our uh, <laughs> in our history. We'd never done it. So for me to go from there to uh, this world of adventure and the outdoor world of adventure was a stretch, but uh, it was an amazing one. And it's, uh, uh, well, it happened. <laughs> you got your love of the Arctic from your dad. You talk about this in your book, uh, Rowing the Northwest Passage, how your dad worked as a radio operator in Northern Labrador, and you would hear stories of that. What, what was he telling you growing up about his time up there? And, and what kind of pictures did that paint in your head? Well, uh, yeah, his time up there pictured, uh, it was just a, a brutal, harsh place, but uh, it's strangely enticing and magnificent as well. And um, But he talked about how, how lonely and quiet and desolate and, and how just brutally harsh it was. And, we, you know, we lived in Montreal. It was cold, boy. And it, nothing in comparison to what he had experienced. And it intrigued me, you know, this, this place that is part of our country, yet so completely out there and inhospitable. And uh, it, it painted, uh, you know, for a young guy, uh, it, it just painted a scene of something so adventurous and unique. Um, so obviously that stoked the fire as well, I suppose. And I've, I love the Arctic regions, be it Arctic or, or Antarctic regions. Uh, there's something really magic about places like that. What was your first chance to get up there into whether it was Alaska or the Northwest Territories or Yukon or, or Nunavut? What, what came first? Well, what came first uh, was actually in uh, year 2000, a close friend of mine asked me if I wanted to join him uh, attempting to ski the Iditarod Trail mm -hmm. uh, right across Alaska. And that's huge, right? It's 1,860 kilometers long. It had never been done. It was part of this race called the Iditasport Impossible and where people would traverse it uh, by human power or would attempt to. It never had been done. Yeah. Um, and I just jumped at it. I, I just loved the idea. And if I was ever going to do a polar expedition, well, darn it, this was a good place to start. I had no idea what I was getting myself into <laughs> at all. I mean, enough so when I showed up at the start line. I mean, the banner across the start line, their motto for this race was where cowards won't show and the weak will die. <laughs> and I knew right away, <laughs> holy boy, I'm in for it here. And yeah. um, it was an interesting one, though, boy, because uh, a lot of people didn't think we'd we'd succeed, uh, including myself in some weird way. But through it, it took us 33 days and uh, we did it. And coming out the other end of that, boy, it was again this feeling like I had as a kid that I achieved something I never actually thought I could achieve. And it gave me this sense of confidence that I could do more. And I loved it. It touched on something there that was really amazing. Really, really amazing. You did something not that long after that, that uh, I did a sport impossible. You, you went back there with a bicycle and, yep. uh, and rode a bicycle. So what, what was your bike trip through the Yukon? Where did you go? How far did you go? Well, it was a 2,000-kilometer trip from uh, Dawson City, Yukon, to Nome, Alaska. And the reason we got it, or I got the idea for it was when I skied into uh, to a small community called Ruby on the Yukon River. We were shattered. Uh, and this was on my first expedition. This guy, um, uh, Jay, I think his name was, he, uh, he was kind of joking with us, saying, you guys think you're tough. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> back in 1900, there was these guys who rode bicycles 
all the way to Nome. And I said, yeah, right, whatever. Did, did he, I thought he didn't have bicycles back then. Uh-huh. But I did a bit of research a few years after, and, and sure enough, these two gold miners, Ed Jessen and Max Hirschberg, rode these wheels, as they called them, bicycles, from Dawson City all the way to Nome on a packed, I might add, a packed dog track. Because back in the day, there was people in this winter trying to traverse from uh, Dawson to Nome, recognizing their, they had just found gold on the beaches of Nome and they wanted to get there first. So they were going to traverse that winter. And so all these dog teams were running down the river. Uh, to roadhouses every 25 miles, uh, and roadhouses are little cabins they sort of set up for for that. And they followed in the tracks of these dog teams, a packed track. And I, I was intrigued by this journey, and and uh, they uh, Jessen had written this diary of it, and it, like a journal. And I thought, wow, has anyone ever done that again? And uh, no one had. So I I put together an expedition to retrace it following his journal as we did it, mm-hmm. taking us 49 days. And this is pre-fat bike, I might add. This is, you know, early uh, 2000s when um, we had to create our own fat bike. You know, you see fat bikes out now with these massive, like, eight-inch tires. We didn't have anything like that. We had uh, <laughs> a kind of larger rims where we uh, had custom-made rims made and used a downhill racing tire to sort of add a bit of weight to float on the snow. But we did it that way, and... Uh, but we pulled it off, boy, and it was, um, you know, 2,000K yeah. uh, in Alaska. So, yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> so you're doing about about 40K a day through through snowy conditions. How, how long does it take to go 40 kilometers in, in weather like that? Well, it just depends. I mean, one yeah. day we did 160K down a frozen section of river, which was really packed down nicely. Other days we do 20K, pushing, uh-huh. you know, like mid-shin to almost knee-deep snow at times. We push all day and you just haul your bike along it was just miserable so it varied all over the place but when we were riding we could easily do 50 or 60k in a day when we couldn't ride we'd be doing way way less than that of mm-hmm. course so yeah it was um it was an amazing thing and the fact that it was possible you know we did it and we weren't following in the in the tracks of dog teams in fact we were following the tracks of a wolf pack for two days that were packing down the trail for us but uh, it was remote really remote way out there and uh, an incredible experience did you have to worry about polar bears in that in that area? Would that be a risk, or were there other predators that you had to be conscious of up there? You know, the predators, no, and wolves, I suppose, but not, not, not something we're particularly worried about. Yeah. Uh, moose are the biggest concern. They uh-huh. get really off uh, in that environment uh, when the snow is deep and they're being hunted by wolves. And if they're on a packed track of any form, you know, it's best to get out of it because these things are monsters. And they, have, you know... They're, they're very simple intelligence. It's either run away or charge you and stomp you. And you do not want a 2,000-pound or 3,000-pound moose doing that. So uh, moose, are you, you're watching out for. Theoretically, uh, way up uh, at the end, where we're up on uh, Norton Sound and the Bering Sea going into Nome, uh, polar bears have been seen up there. So in theory, we could have come across them. Not very common. Uh, so we weren't particularly concerned. <laughs> So you, we've talked so far about, uh, I mean, going up north, but then in 2009, you go to the polar opposite, uh, quite literally, to the South Pole, and you're going the fastest unsupported trek to the South Pole from Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, you know, it was kind of fulfilling that dream as a kid, right, of, of skiing to a pole. I had read all these books and you know, my teammate, uh, Richard Weber, I had read his book, Polar Attack, about his uh, successful traverse to the North Pole and back unsupported a number of years before that. 
And he was a hero of mine. You know, I read that book with just intrigue. I just, once again, I had read everything I could possibly read on polar exploration. And that was it. And he's a Canadian. And here I was actually joining Richard on this journey with um, with famed ultra runner Ray Zahab, mm -hmm. who's uh, arguably one of the greatest ultra runners in the world and who's a close friend. And it was just, this, we were kind of, in a sense, it was, they were the dream team and I was hanging on for dear life, <laughs> uh, which was... Uh, Wonderful. I mean, I was chosen uh, to be part of the team. Uh, I mean, because I had adventure experience, I had proven myself to be fast enough to keep up, I suppose. And um, I'm also an architect. So, you know, I was taking care of the uh, the creative side of things. I was writing and I was uh, filming and photographing the expedition when I was out there. But ultimately, uh, we just wanted to get to the pole to see if we could do it. And the fact we broke the world record in getting there was just like gravy, you know? Mm. But really mm. for us, we had over 10,000 school kids following us when we were out there. Right. And, uh, you know, it was our job uh, every night to answer questions. And because of satellite technology, they were able to send us emails and we were able to answer them, you know, live sitting in our tent. And it was pretty cool to be hearing from these young kids all over the world and answering them. So we were committed to all that more so than anything else. We were committed to getting to the poll and committed to, you know, documenting it and sharing it. The fact that we broke the world record was just this uh, thing that uh, kind of blew us all away. And we did it by a big margin too, by uh, almost six days. All right, let's talk about rowing the Northwest Passage. This is something that in your book, you mentioned how it had been a plan or a dream for two decades before you even set out to do it. Yeah. What was that first conversation that you had that sparked the flame and, and got you thinking about maybe this is possible someday? Well, uh, a good friend of mine, Jerome Curran, he's uh, another hero, a uh, guy who's done the most amazing things, a super, super uh, understated fellow who uh, was the first guy to descend the Amazon River by kayak. Just crazy stuff that he did back in his day. And we had a chat about adventure and what was left that undone in the adventure world. And we both agreed quite quickly that uh, traversing the Northwest Passage solely under human power in a single season was something that no one had even co come close to achieving. Mm -hmm. And um, it was like, wow, that would be so cool to do or attempt to do. But at the time, we both laughed and said, well, it's impossible. That was 1996 or seven when we chatted about it. And um, it was just no way that it was choked in ice. But, mm. you know, but <laughs> someday, maybe with the things as they were changing. And sure enough, you know, come 2012, the passage was open, you know, it had melted enough that something like that could be done. The window was big enough that it was theoretically possible to achieve. So that really inspired me. And what was doubly inspiring was the fact, and you know, it's interesting, when I went to the South Pole, we had garnered, um, we found out later on through various media sources that we garnered 1.5 billion, now with a B, billion media impressions oh, when wow. we did this. So one in five people on the planet in some way got wind of the fact that we broke the world record to the pole. And it, it, it was an aha moment for me saying, you know, God, if we were able to, if I was able to connect a really important message to a really outstanding expedition that drew that sort of attention, mm -hmm. what an amazing way to leverage something important. So there lay the, the Northwest Passage in a nutshell. You know, if we could do this thing, which had never been done before, Oh, we could bring awareness to something, to the changes that are happening there, because the only reason we were able to do it in the first place was because of those changes. Mm -hmm. So a powerful way to sort of connect the message and the adventure. And uh, that was really the inspiration to attempt it. 
So you start off 2013. When exactly and, and where exactly was ground zero, essentially, for you starting this this rowing expedition across uh, the Northwest Passage? Yeah, well, our, our starting point was going to be Tuktoyaktuk, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it ended up having to be Inuvik, uh, and then we had to go down the Mackenzie and then out to Tuk, which actually took us uh, 10 days because of storms, uh, to even just get to the start. But, uh, you know, you couldn't drive to Tuktoyaktuk. You can drive there in the wintertime. Now, this year, you can drive to Tuk. They just put in the road. Uh-huh. But uh, prior to that, you could not. So we started in, in Anubik. And the reason we started uh, defining the Northwest Passage as a start point in Tuk and the end point on Pond Inlet is to be clarified. Because, you know, uh, by mariner standards, as some had pointed out to us, uh, and which we had known, of course, all along, is that the true Northwest Passage goes from, you know, Arctic Circle to Arctic Circle, connecting the Pacific to the Atlantic, and a massive journey. Um, but it's not, it's not, it was never the uh, the crux of the puzzle, you know? The real uh, magic of the so-called passage was the passage, the archipelago connecting through the Canadian high Arctic. Like, how do you get through there? That was, yeah. that was yeah. the, the riddle, right? And enough so, in fact, uh, and it's interesting how this, these definitions go. But uh, when when uh, Raoul Amundsen successfully made it across the Northwest Passage, and he was sailing um, into uh, essentially Tuktoyaktuk, Herschel Island, at the mouth of the Mackenzie, he was met by another boat called the Charles Nansen, an American boat from San Francisco. Uh, and they met, and the captain of the Nansen gave him a hug and said, congratulations on traversing the Northwest Passage. So in his eyes, in the eyes of the world, he had done it there. And enough so, in fact, that he moored and and uh, camped for the season on Herschel Island and uh, took a male uh, uh, dog team all the way down to Eagle, Alaska, to tell the world that he had succeed, succeeded in traversing the Northwest Passage mm-hmm. when he was there. So that was our thought. Well, this is where we're going to start because this is truly, you know, the perceived passage by, by um, uh, you know, history. Mm-hmm. So we started there and headed uh, due east. We decided to start in Tuk because um, the ice melts out earlier in Tuktoyaktuk than it does on the other end. Uh, it's further north in the other end. So progressively as we head uh, east, it would melt out more and more as we go. We needed the biggest window we could. If you try from the other end, we'd never have time to make it across. Uh, so that was the logic in starting uh, in, in Tuktoyaktuk or in Nubek or ultimately Tuk. Hey, this is Martin Bauman from Story Untold. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, a message from another podcast worth checking out. This is Change Over Time, a podcast where I think historically about things I geek. I'm Daniel Horowitz-Garcia, the alternative historian. Frankly, I geek a lot of things, things like video games. A movie like Uncle Buck, you could have gone any time to any movie store and bought a copy of it. I would think that there would be as much demand for perhaps some of these games as there would be Uncle Buck. Steampunk. When people say, oh, I like your clothes, I say, well, if you like my clothes, you'll like my books. I dress like I write. The legacy of slavery. People will say, Southerners were, of course, Confederates. And I'm thinking, well, four and a half million black people were Southerners. Not so sure that that's true for them. The impact of Hurricane Maria on Puerto Rico. I was able to get in contact with my cousin in, in Bayamón, and, you know, we spoke, and she was crying, talking to me, and said, Elmer, however you remember home, doesn't exist anymore. And a lot more. Mostly, though, I geek history. I use the tools and training of the historian to make sense of things. Along the way, I meet great people and hear great stories. Join me on Change Over Time at changeovertimepodcast.com. Describe the, the vessel that you're taking with you, this rowboat. Uh, if someone's picturing it in their mind, it's not a conventional rowboat, right? Um, what, is it, what does it look like? 
Well, it's an ocean rowing boat, uh, four man uh, boat where four people can stay on it. These boats are used actually for transatlantic, transpacific, transocean crossings. Mm -hmm. So it's totally self-sufficient, right? And and rollable, like you can roll this thing and it'll theoretically roll back if none of the hatches are open. And it um, it's 25 feet long. It has both a stern and bow cabin. The bow cabin is quite small. You can store gear and stuff in there. Um, the uh, and then imagine there's a small cabin up front, and then there's a big open area where you can have two stations for rowing. So two rowing stations open, and then a, a stern cabin, which again now is built up uh, kind of like like a big egg on the back, if you kind of call it that, with a hatch, a couple hatches. And in there, you can actually four men can sleep tightly. I might add, you can <laughs> yeah. do. Um, you have everything in there. And so, in a, and then below deck, below our rowing stations, we can store food. We had our desalinator. We had a desalinator on board, so we were extracting ocean water and making it fresh, run by batteries, all charged by solar. So we were fully self-contained. We could be out there for 70, 80 days uh, without having to resupply in any way. Mm -hmm. So, uh, pretty amazing uh, boat, uh, custom made and designed by ourselves based upon a model that had traversed uh, the Atlantic before, but reinforced for um, for ice. We, we put on a Kevlar layer, made it a little heavier, but the idea was we could smack into a big chunk of ice and not crack the hull. Uh -huh. And and load it up with enough food to last you all that time too, right? Um, it, it, food that was akin to like is it is it kind of astronaut food or is it just kind of like the ready you know ready made heated up and it's ready to go kind of thing? Yeah, it's, it's dried food. You get it, you know, the outdoor store. I uh, add hot water essentially and uh, eat. Uh, with that, we had porridge and we had coffee and we had uh, various snacks um, to get us through with power bars and so forth. So, um, you know, pretty basic old diet, I'll be honest with you. Uh, you, you sort of crave an apple uh -huh. <laughs> or a salad or anything for that matter. But um, it works, and you can certainly survive on it for that duration. And, you know, you just uh, had a whole variation on flavors and, and various types of stroganoffs and this and that and the other. And uh, it was good. It was good. I, I kind of like dry food anyway, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Barry Lopez has a great quote, which you mentioned in your book, about the Arctic. He says, to travel in the Arctic is to wait. What was that experience like for you in, in being in a rowboat uh, wanting to go farther and, and faster, but uh, being at the mercy of the Arctic. Well, it it forces you. You have no choice. I mean, if you try to force it, you're gonna you're gonna be met with problems, and it's hard. You know, I'm, I'm accustomed to adventures where I just get up in the morning and go. You know, unless it's absolutely catastrophic out, you're you're just get up, deal with it, and go and move forward and get something done. Up there, it wasn't working that way. And, you know, the um, in uh, in a nook, they have a word uh, that uh, I can't think of it offhand now, uh, but it, 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 it means deep patience. And uh -huh. it's it's a word that we don't have in our language. And deep patience is uh, is the epitome of that region. And deep patience could be, uh, you know, an Inuit hunter at, at, um, at an air hole for a seal just waiting and waiting until it resurfaces, waiting hours and hours and hours for that very moment, waiting until you can traverse this section. You just have to wait on land until you can get out of the water, maybe days. And we began to discover and feel uh, sort of a deep understanding for this deep patience which um, is the epitome of travel in the Arctic. 
So you were working in, in teams of twos, essentially, right? You, you would take turns, two on, two off, uh, over the course of, what, about four hours before you would switch? Is that right? Yeah, we started at four hours, and then we changed it to three. It seemed to be better um, just on the fly. And it's three hours on, three hours off. And the theory is you never stop, right? You just yeah. keep going. And so we would, and we could go for days, and we did go for days, where we'd be doing these three hours on, three hours off shifts. So, you know, you'd fire in, get an hour and a half of sleep, and then you'd brew up something, you know, get a little bit of food, fire out again, three hours, back in again, that sort of thing, on and off. It's exhausting work, but you get into the groove of it, your body starts to adjust to it. Mm -hmm. But invariably, uh, we would go for two, three days, whatever, and then bang, we'd be hit by something insane, and we'd be, you know, trying to survive, <laughs> Uh, it's a massive storm or some craziness that was happening. It seemed to happen very periodically up there, uh, routinely, that is, um, and then just deal with it. And then weather would allow us to move again. We would, and we'd go nonstop when we could uh, throughout it. And how are you sleeping on those rotations? Is, is it a case where your body is so exhausted that it's no problem to just turn off like a light when you, when you finally get that three-hour break? Yeah, I find, uh, I mean, it depends on the person, right? I mean, yeah. uh, Frank Wolf is the strongest guy I've ever met, yet he, he struggles with sleep. Like, he's like one who doesn't sleep a whole lot, and, and uh, you know, noise and, and various things will affect his sleep patterns. I'll just fall unconscious. I, I just find I can sleep. If I'm tired, I'll sleep. Uh, it sucks, though, you know, an hour and a half of sleep isn't a whole lot, and you really crave more. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so you do it, bang, you force yourself up you know, get a drink, coffee, whatever, and, and, um, eat some food and then back out again. And then once you're out in the environment, you're, you're getting going, but yeah, it's hard. Uh, those little, it's a bunch of cat naps one after the other, uh, to keep it going. You mentioned the, how close the quarters were on that boat and having to share that very small space with three other people. Uh, one of the, one of the parts of the book that, that, uh, <laughs> probably made me laugh the most is, is, the part where one of your one of your um, rowing partners he's you know he's trying to wipe his butt out the back of the boat and the wind catches it and and lands uh, on the guy's friend's Frank. oar yeah um, what's what's that like to to be in such close quarters with uh, with those guys for days and days on end well, it's hard, right? Uh, and that was well into it. And that takes a lot of experience to get used to that. And they did some studies on polar exploration and, and, and teamworks and, you know, relationships with team members. And uh, it's more akin and from their studies uh, uh, that these teammates on these polar expeditions, it, uh, their relationships are more akin to that of uh, prisoners in jail, mm -hmm. inmates, than that of actual colleagues. And it's because you're you're basically prisoners in a sense into that environment, uh, stuck with people. And imagine our little cabin, right? It's roughly five feet by seven feet kind of thing. And that's a small bathroom, right? A five by seven is a small bathroom. Mm -hmm. But take a small bathroom and reduce the height to being four feet on one side and two feet on the other, uh, say, and where you have to be kind of kneeling or lying down the mm -hmm. whole time. And that's where four guys live potentially for four for 48 hours or more at a time, right? Mm -hmm. And take that little bathroom, the half-height bathroom or third-height bathroom with four guys in it unwashed for 60 days and take that little bathroom and start banging it around and moving it all over the place like a crazy quick. <laughs> and then you get a better sense of what it's like. So you have to understand that you're going to go through moments when you uh, hate everything about everyone and even the way they balance their teeth. But they're feeling that way about you as well. So you, recognizing, understanding it before... 
beforehand really helps when you're out there. And we didn't have any fights, and we got along great. Uh, and, you know, you have moments, of course, but uh, we got along, and uh, we're still all friends. So that's really, really important. And I've never had an expedition a colleague who I don't still like. I've never had that situation. So I think um, I've certainly chosen well and over the years. <laughs> Well, you and Frank, uh, especially, right, have have uh, that that wasn't your only expedition you've done together. You you've had a bit more history to to get to know each other and and how um how each other works, right? Yeah, well, Frank's uh, probably my best friend, and uh, we're really really close friends and have been for almost two decades. And yeah, we're very compatible um, emotionally out there and uh, physically, like uh, in terms of athletics. So and and we just get along. We sort of click. And Frank is one bold bugger though and uh he's the guy you want there when when the crap hits the fan uh he's just even keeled and he'll get stuff done and he's going to pull more than his weight and um just an amazing guy and uh always would you know you want people like frank on your expedition <laughs> well let's talk about those moments when it, it gets hairy and um and it could turn really quickly you you had a few of them on on your um expedition the one where you you're you're kind of on one side, you've got this ice that's uh, that's coming and that's threatening to you're going to get stuck under the ice. On the other side, you have this sheer cliff wall of what you thought was going to be your island refuge, right? Uh, we have to f- navigate through that to find a, a bit more of a sheltered uh, place where you can where you can um, get to land for a bit. Uh, yeah. What what was that like in the in that moment? Well, we had two. I mean, one was that kind of, uh, it wasn't so much a cliff, but it was just a really rocky shore. And if we were thrown up, we, our boat would be destroyed. And we were, we are unanchored on it in a huge storm. And uh, we had gone to bed just because we'd been going for days and days without stopping and surveyed the uh, horizon. There was no ice, of course, and went to sleep. And like, I don't know what time it was, an hour or so later, or might have been more because we were unconscious. I woke to this banging noise thinking it was my teammate. And looking out the cabin, only saw white and went out there and realized a massive piece of sea ice that was 40 feet thick by my best estimate looking down through it. Like it was just mm-hmm. a bottomless, massive thing, four-story building thick, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, this thing was on top of us, on top of our anchor. We, were, we couldn't pull our anchor because it was on top of us now. It was, our anchor went underneath it deep down and there was no way to remove it and it was being blown by a gale over top of us and i remember there was just this moment of, of questioning do we cut the anchor do we not cut the anchor um and you've got to make a decision quick because it, like the bow was starting to get pulled and the thought was oh do you think it's going to shift to one side or not or do you think we'll be able to hold it in place you just don't know because well you've never been confronted with this before <laughs> in, yeah. in Doing my research after the fact, I realized that the weight of that piece of ice was roughly the size of a medium-sized aircraft carrier. Um, so Jeez. imagine something of that scale coming over top of this little 25-foot rowboat. We would have been sucked under it so quick had we not cut the anchor. And I did cut the anchor. I, I, I made a decision, <laughs> jumped to the front of the bow and cut it. I didn't have to cut it. I just touched it with my knife and it exploded off. And there we were now uh, in a tempest without an anchor being driven to shore fighting for all we're worth to um, not go up onto shore, uh, hid behind another big piece of grounded sea ice and anchored ourselves to that only to realize it was starting to break up and then starting to twist and turn, being attached to imagine a house-sized piece of ice that was now going to spin and you attached to it. It was 
crazy. Things were happening so fast. And uh, finally, I screwed out, out of that thing. We had ice screws into that and pulled away. And then it spent, you know, we were on 10-minute shifts just trying to keep offshore and did that for several hours until we found this tiny little oasis where we could tuck in. And it wasn't even on the map. And um, we got out of it. But it was certainly was a, a very an eye-opening experience and a very humbling one how quickly things can change. And things you just don't anticipate can happen, right? Part of the real takeaway for you on this adventure was being able to meet with people who live in these conditions, right? People who are living in these communities in the far north that we Canadians who who live so close to the U.S. border and live so far south tend to forget about uh, sometimes. To hear from them directly how their environment is changing through time. Yeah, they're, they're the voice of it, right? And it, it, fascinating because when we were coming into Tuck right in the beginning, we, we were hit with all this vitriol, this nastiness from, from the social media world, something I'd never experienced before. Mm-hmm. Um, and people calling us, well, stuff I won't even repeat, uh, it was just horrible. And I couldn't understand, like, where are these people coming from? Or what are they on about? And they're dedicating a website to us and everything. And it went on and on, and all it was dismissing us, uh, saying we're crazy and that, uh, you know, uh, climate change is not real, blah, blah, blah. And then um, you're, I was fascinated. And I remember speaking to an elder in town with some trepidation, thinking that maybe we're off on the wrong track here maybe it isn't happening as much as we thought and i remember speaking to this one guy and uh, um uh, fred Wolke, and uh, he i said hey fred is it is it you know have you seen much changes in your life here and he was in his 70s and he says well let me tell you the changes and he he, he just looked at me like i was a nut job he says mm. of course it's been changing and let me tell you and he told us a massive change how the sea ice used to always be locked in town and it used to be massive, as thick as the pingos, um, huge bergs, as he called them. How now the permafrost is melting, how the graveyard is melting into the ocean, how the, and, you know, the buildings are being moved, how new animals are on the scene, new birds, new insects, new this, the be, you know, beavers in the waters, on and on and on. And you realize, hold on a moment, he has no agenda. This guy is just saying it the way it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and what he said would be echoed by everyone up there. Uh, yet these other folks with an agenda down south were uh, calling us nuts and saying that climate change isn't real. So that I really doubled down at that point and say, you know, we really have to share the voice of the people up here because uh, it's about time people listen to the people that actually live there rather than people who really don't know what's going on down south. Right. There's a a quote of yours in the book uh, where you mentioned how it's about getting past the idea that what's happening is is distant and surreal and irrelevant to the rest of us. That experience of of people, the vitriol that you received on social media and on the Internet from people, how did you process that? How did you uh, develop a filter for that and being able to um, respond to that or, or not respond to that? Well, I wanted to respond at first. And I remember Frank saying, don't, you know, just don't. And he says, just don't bother. Uh, and he wasn't affected by it. I was pissed. And I just wanted to go in with a proverbial baseball bat and swing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it was just not the place because you can't win that art. You can't win against these people. You know, they can just spout off all the crap they want and lie. And uh, there's really no point in engaging with them. So we didn't. We just figure our actions will be the words that will will uh, will be our words in, in a sense. And and having the words of, of the people up there uh, counter their words and having the real words of, of experience rather than just um, – you know, rhetoric. So it was hard uh, for me. I struggled with it, but I was all the more determined to uh, to really open my eyes to what was happening and speak to the people and share their message and counter all this, uh, well, falsehoods. 
tell me about the the final decision between the four of you to uh, call it a day at, at some point uh, when you realize that that the ice in in that place where you're trying to get through was too thick. Uh, there, there wasn't going to be the opening that you were looking for. Um, what was that like to um, to have to make that decision? Well, you know what we saw? We saw it coming uh, for sure. And, you know, to be honest with you, man, it, it wasn't ice that was stopping us. Eventually it would have been because we ran out of time and mm -hmm. the ocean would start refreezing. That's really what was happening. So it wasn't sea ice there that was stopping us. It was crazy weather, right? Mm -hmm. Insane weather, cyclones and Oh, stuff that is just really somewhat unprecedented in that environment. I guess as more ocean is exposed, there's more moisture in the air and more things are happening. So, uh, and, you know, the people concurred, uh, the people, uh, uh, you know, the Inuit concurred with us that uh, the weather is changing up there and it's getting worse. So really it was, it was this weather that was stopping us. And at the time, you know, we wanted to uh, make the right call. We're going to be professional about this. We could just, you know, go on another couple hundred K for sure. Maybe, maybe not make it. But with the risk of having to be rescued. And, you know, uh, we had a choice. Rescuers don't. Right. So to that end of things, we made the right call. And uh, interestingly, we were past several weeks before we decided to end it by a group of jet skiers, of all things. Um, it was just the most surreal thing to meet this group. We'd see no one out there. Next thing you know, these massive jet skis, four of them with a big support boat with cameras and all this thing come by us and mm -hmm. chat with us. They said, yeah, we're, we're jet skiing the Northwest Passage. And it's like, oh my God, they're going 80K an hour. Like at the time when they caught us, we were going 2K an hour. And I laughed and I said, you guys will be done in five days. You know, like they'll be through it before we even get around the next corner it seemed and um uh they ended up having to be rescued about 400 kilometers ahead of where we stopped because uh again weather got crazy uh they were uh, you know they got pushed into all sorts of nastiness uh a polar bear attacked one of their supply tents on and on so um they were rescued and it it was at a cost a significant cost i think it would it, you know to rally one of these Icebreakers, uh, I think it was uh, Sir Wilfred Laurier that re rescued them, uh, is $80,000 a day, you know, and I think it was three days to get them. So you're talking a quarter million bucks is that um, of taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want that associated with our expedition. We were going <laughs> to no. do this. Thing. Uh, we were trying to make a statement. We're, we're not going to do it on everyone's dime, right? We're going to do it uh, professionally. And so the decision came easy. You met a kayaker on your trip, uh, Diane, and she was going yeah. by herself. Wh whatever happened to her, and, and and how did she end up on that on that kayaking trip? She, uh, yeah, amazing woman, and uh, in, in many ways, uh, you see how tenuous things were when we came across her. Her her dry suit, which she was using, uh, the zipper was was stuck open, so she dumped. She was going to drown. She would freeze. Um, it wasn't going to work. She was drinking salt water, actually, when we met her from a lagoon, which was, well, you know, obviously her kidneys won't deal with that very well. Uh, her, her, you know, rations weren't good. Um, her shotgun was not working. It was all... Uh, uh, rusted up and uh, her sat phone was out of charge so there was no way to connect to the outside world so we gave her water we gave her some food we uh, cleaned up her gun uh, we oiled it up uh, we fixed her uh, her dry suit and um, you know I just felt my god this is so tenuous like I really was nervous for her um, her boat had a crack in it and everything else and she ended up um, stopping in Politak that community where mm -hmm. we got our anchor there about halfway through and uh, she stopped there 
Um, and, uh, you know, she recognized that that was a good point to end it. But I was really nervous for her. An amazing woman, absolutely incredible lady uh, out there in such a harsh place. She was 58 and she was just an amazing woman. Uh, but uh, you realize how how out there it was, or I did anyway. It felt like we were stretching our neck out a little bit. Well, man, hers was so far out. You know, it was really um, – yeah, it's pretty full on. <laughs> in 2016, you got to take your daughters to the Arctic and you, and you went yeah. to uh, the Mackenzie River. What was that like to bring them to the place that, that's been so special to you and, and to get to show them this environment uh, that you had experienced so so viscerally firsthand? Yeah, it was amazing. Actually, that's one of the coolest, if not the coolest expedition I've ever done, interestingly. Uh, not necessarily the most physically challenging expedition but certainly in so many ways emotionally the most uh, riveting and we yeah we we paddled from hay river on great slave lake all the way uh to anubic uh, just shy of uh, the arctic ocean uh, we were going to go to Tuktoyaktuk, but uh, we decided uh, not to it just i've done that last little 100k and just downriver float but uh, once you come around a corner and make your way up to tuck you could be nailed by all sorts of storms. So Anubik was the logical way out, and we stepped out there. But it was a 1,750-kilometer journey, I believe the, the distance was. And we were out there for you know 35 days with a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, mm-hmm. uh, two little girls, my babies, um, uh, in a truly wild experience of the north. And it was incredible. And it changed them, right? I mean, at the end, they, it was so empowering for them, again, they just changed as little creatures from, you know, uh, now they know they can do something like that. And they did. And they proved that, wow, it was an amazing place to be. And they got a great insight into the Arctic. You know, they saw musk ox, they saw all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so it's really cool. How did that experience, both the trip that you could take with your daughters, but also more, more so the, the rowing of the Northwest Passage, how did that trip stay with you once you finished it? Well, it, to me, it's just this alarm bell for me with the Northwest Passage is that uh, it is the classic canary in the coal mine. You know, the Arctic's melting twice as fast as anywhere on Earth. Once the sea ice, it's going to be this radical transformation when, when finally the sea ice, it becomes sea ice free in the summer months up there, which it will soon. Uh, and, you know, all that solar radiation that's being reflected back into space will all be heating up the ocean. It's going to change everything. And I don't think we realize exactly how profoundly it will change. You know, obviously there's the symbols of that change, be it the polar bears struggling and they anticipated the next few decades that potentially could lose half the population of polar bears. They become symbols. Of, of a bigger disease, you know, that's really um, happening. And, and it's just, that's what sticks with me is that um, how things are not necessarily changing, right? Mm-hmm. The change in administration in the U.S. and the rejection of climate change, even as something that's real, is uh, is alarming to me. And uh, so that's what sticks with me is that these changes are happening. They're happening really fast and they're not, uh, we need to do something about it. Uh, and, you know, all this rhetoric about questioning science, because that's all it is now. 97% of scientists say this is real. The other 3% are infighting and disagreeing <laughs> among themselves anyway. Yeah. It's like yeah. 97% of doctors tell you something. It's happening. It's happening. I mean, this is this is what science is. So it's coming down to this point that people say, well, I just don't believe it. It's like, well, then you don't believe science, but you will get on an airplane. And that's all science telling you how aerodynamics works. This is as simple as that. This is scientific proof. It's happening. we got to deal with it. And uh, it's uh, unnerving because as a dad, you know, uh, I feel just a certain amount of responsibility. 
probably the hardest part or the scariest part of, of reading your book is that passage where you mentioned how the door to reach two degrees is about to close in 2017 was that that door. It's 2018 yeah. now. Uh, I know. <laughs> well, and to point, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, and the numbers are crazy, right? Uh, it's it's they're talking that, um, you know, even even currently with 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 the Paris Accord, we're uh, we're aiming for uh, they're thinking like 2.9 Celsius to 3.4 degrees Celsius if we just kind of stick to that. Right. Um, but, you know, the World Bank, World Bank, I mean, these are rather conservative people are saying that we're headed for four degrees Celsius. Um, well, four degrees Celsius, the last time the world was at four degrees Celsius, warmer than it was, is today. There was no ice at either pole. Right. Mm -hmm. There was nothing. And uh, the oceans were 80 meters higher than they are today like you know that that's that's 260 feet higher than they are today the last time we reached four degrees and, and we are totally on track for four uh without much difficulty if we do nothing uh, well actually if we do nothing we're going to hit six so and then we're starting to pushing into a realm where you know certain sec parts of the world mammals can't survive uh mm -hmm. it gets to a point mm -hmm. they've done this these studies on there's a certain degree of temperature where you just can't cool yourself enough and there's mass die off. And we, that will happen uh, when you hit six and seven Celsius. So it's um, it sounds crazy, but that's what's happening. It's, it's survival. It's humanity. <laughs> but go figure. Right. So you and Frank, I imagine, are still in touch. What about the, the other two that that joined you on the trip? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Dennis lives down just away and uh, uh, saw him a few months ago. And uh, and uh, Paul Gleason, um, I keep in contact with as well. So oh, no, we're all in contact. Yeah. What's uh, what's next for you after? I mean, you, you have no no steady uh, shortage of, of, of expeditions that you've been on uh, over the last many decades. Uh, do you have one that you're eyeing for either this year or, or a few years to come? Well, on Sunday, I'm leaving for New Zealand to climb a mountain. <laughs> so never very ends very soon, um, and uh, doing that for a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, in April, uh, the hope is to traverse across Baffin Island uh, on the Akshayak Pass. Um, you know, from the uh, from the east coast to the west coast of Baffin Island. So uh, that'll be fun. I'm gonna. Uh, guide a group across and um, that should be an amazing experience in the Canadian high Arctic and my wife is coming along on that too so um, yeah I have a couple things in the uh, in the pen ready to go <laughs> uh, Kevin where can people find your book or or follow along with your latest travels well the book can be found anywhere uh, Amazon uh, online uh, you just type it in and uh, rowing the Northwest Passage um, you know adventure fear and awe in a rising sea or my name and that it'll come up. Um, you can be found on any uh, many many bookstores, Chapters, Indigo, and all that here um, in in Canada. So uh, it's readily accessible online or in a bookstore. So yeah, I'd love if uh, people would read it. And uh, and the thing with the book is that it is truly a, an adventure yarn, but it's um, it's it's also crafted in a way to. Uh, you know, share knowledge about, or share information about climate change, but in a, in a dynamic, interesting way, not a kind of boring way. And that's the intent is, you know, by the end of it, you come out having learned something yet having really experienced a cool adventure. How was the process of, of, uh, of writing it for you? I mean, the first book for you, right? Um, uh, to, to be a, a published author now, what, what did it take for you to put that into uh, all those pages? Well, it's hard. It took me two years. Uh, uh -huh. It was two years of writing. And, uh, 
it, it uh, is one of the hardest things I've done, frankly. Um, it's, you know, I'm an architect and, uh, you know, the process of, of designing a building and then see it through to fruition, to being built, takes off in two to three years. And it's very similar to that with a book. You know, it, ultimately, you have, you have something to stand by, though, in the end, uh, just like a building is that uh, you have it, you've done it, and it's very tangible. And I like that. There's something really nice about that. And uh, But it's a lot of work, boy. Uh, <laughs> anyone who's, who's tried it before recognizes that it's uh, it's a big effort. But, you know, big efforts are always uh, the most satisfying, too, when you finish them. So yeah, uh, enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, you seem to come by it naturally. So if, uh, if, if you ever put pen to paper again for any of your other adventures, I'll be uh, eager to read more. Oh, that'd be wonderful. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review if you're on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Next week on the show, what would you do if you found out you had a year left to live. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.